Israel is mobilizing more than 300,000 reservists in response to last weekend's assault by Hamas. It's Wednesday, October 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, President Biden condemned the Hamas attack and promised military support for Israel. We will make sure the Jewish and Democratic State of Israel can defend itself today, tomorrow, as we always have. Also this hour, southern highways traveled by people seeking abortion care are becoming lined with messages from anti-abortion activists. I-55 is just covered with hateful, judgmental, intentionally traumatizing anti-abortion billboards. And the latest in the civil trial over former President Trump's business practices. We'll preview the Bruin season, which begins tonight. Forecast says clouds today. Highs in the 60s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The death toll continues to climb in the Israel-Gaza war. Israeli media say at least 1,200 Israelis were killed in the Hamas attacks. And Palestinian officials say now well over 1,000 Palestinians in Gaza were killed. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. Israel says 1,000 Hamas militants were killed inside Israel. Israel carried out heavy bombardments on Gaza, with eyewitnesses describing widespread destruction of neighborhoods in Gaza City. All of Gaza's borders are closed, leaving Palestinians with nowhere to escape, and around a tenth of Gaza's population internally displaced seeking shelter. The Biden administration says there are talks to create a safe corridor for civilians. Israel's south has been evacuated of Israeli civilians, and the army says in the past day there were still firefights between 18 Hamas gunmen and Israeli soldiers. Hamas militants fired around 5,000 rockets at Israel since the start of the war, and the Israeli army says it's intensifying its attacks on Gaza and preparing for an unspecified next stage of the war, potentially a ground invasion of Gaza. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Palestinian officials in Gaza say that the enclave's power plant may soon shut down because of lack of fuel. Israel has blocked fuel supplies from entering Gaza. House Republicans are expected to hold a closed-door leadership election today. They're trying to select a new speaker. The candidates are House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise. Scalise says he wants to lead House Republicans to more victories. And we've delivered big wins, and people want to see us get back on track. Uh, We need a Congress that's working. Tomorrow we need to get Congress back to work. Uh, Speaker Scalise, on day one, uh, we will, number one, be passing a resolution to express our strong support for Israel. The House Republican election is by secret ballot. It is not clear if either candidate has enough support to win. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in a redistricting case. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports a decision could allow Democrats a chance to win a second congressional seat in South Carolina. After the 2020 census, South Carolina had to equalize the population of its seven congressional districts as required by the Constitution. A three-judge federal district court upheld the way it drew six of the state's seven districts, but it said that Congressional District 1 was an unconstitutional racial gerrymander. The state argued that the GOP map was a partisan gerrymander to make the district safer to hold for Republicans. But the lower court ruled that the legislature's predominant motivation was racial, that it targeted black voters in the district, removing much of the city of Charleston in order to limit the number of black voters to a relatively low 17.3%. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Congressman Seth Moulton says he's open to voting for a Republican Speaker of the House if Republicans nominate a moderate. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. Moulton says some Democrats would have been willing to save Kevin McCarthy's speakership if McCarthy had extended an olive branch in the final days before the vote that ousted him. Moulton argues now that McCarthy's out, other Republicans would be well advised to negotiate across the aisle. The congressman spoke with WBUR's Radio Boston. We would love to support a moderate candidate, but there isn't one. They haven't put one forward. And some of us behind the scenes have been encouraging moderate Republicans to run, just to learn the lesson from Kevin McCarthy that you can't appease these extremists. By extremists, Moulton is referring to the handful of hardline Republicans who voted to remove McCarthy as speaker. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The State Police Chiefs Association is opposing a new bill designed to overhaul and strengthen Massachusetts' gun laws. The measure by House Democrats would tighten the state's ban on assault weapons and would limit where guns can be carried. But members of the Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association argue the plan would not reduce crime. The state Senate's also working on its own gun reform proposal. Lawmakers say they want to send a bill to the governor before the session ends in January. Also on Beacon Hill, the House is moving forward with a proposal that would increase penalties for the distribution of sexually explicit content without someone's consent. Under the new bill, distributing those photos would be considered criminal harassment. Offenders could face up to two and a half years in jail or a $10,000 fine. The proposal would also require the state to create a program warning children about the risks of sending explicit messages. The T says all of the speed restrictions along the new section of the Green Line have been removed. Those restrictions slowed some trains down to about three miles an hour. The T says the slowdowns were caused by a narrowing of the tracks. Why that happened is still under investigation. Also this morning, trains are running again on the Green Line branch to Union Square in Somerville. That branch had been closed for a bridge reconstruction project. The reopening comes two days ahead of schedule. The time is six minutes past seven. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. The Bruins open their regular season tonight. They'll host the Chicago Blackhawks at the Garden. Mostly cloudy skies in our forecast today. Temperatures in the 60s today. Some spots could see showers tonight. Lows will be around 50 and sunshine tomorrow with highs in the 60s. It is 53 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Join a vibrant academic community, enjoy in-person peer-led courses on their Cambridge campus, speaker events, special interest groups, and more. Apply by October 25th to start in February. To learn more, visit their website, the Harvard Institute for Learning in Retirement. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Jerusalem. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. President Biden has had a series of calls with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu since Hamas launched its attack. And yesterday, after his latest call, he delivered an unequivocal message that there was no justification for the atrocities. The brutality of Hamas, these bloodthirstiness brings to mind the worst 
the worst rampages of ISIS. This is terrorism. But sadly, for the Jewish people, it's not new. And Biden says he plans to ask Congress for more funding for Israel's national security needs. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith is with us now to tell us more about all this. Good morning, Tam. Good morning. So the president went into some graphic detail in his remarks describing what happened during the attacks on on Israel. What do you think he was trying to underscore there? It was really notable coming from Biden. He used words like slaughtered, butchered, massacred, and went into detail about the nature of what he said were sickening atrocities. Hamas, he said, does not stand for the Palestinian cause. Hamas stands for ending the state of Israel and murdering Jewish people. And he said that there was no justification for the attacks. And and to answer your questions, what it seemed like he was doing here was telling Americans in no uncertain terms that this was terrorism. This wasn't war in any traditional sense, and it wasn't far away or abstract. Americans should be outraged, he was arguing. And he also noted that Americans are among the dead and those held hostage. I do have to say, though, that there is still concern among, you know, some in the United States. I mean, and some might say particularly among, you know, progressives about how Israel is going to respond in Gaza as it seeks to root out Hamas. Did, did the president address those concerns? He said that Israel has the right and the duty to respond to the attack. But he did draw a distinction about targeting civilians, about following international laws of war. And he said he talked about this with Israel's prime minister, Netanyahu. I told him the United States experience and Israel experiencing our response would be swift, decisive and overwhelming. We also discussed how democracies like Israel and the United States are stronger and more secure when we act according to the rule of law. His national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, later confirmed to reporters that the U.S. is talking to Egypt and others about providing safe passage for Palestinian civilians who live in Gaza and who are at the moment completely trapped. Moving to another subject, there have been a lot of questions about how these attacks could have happened without warning and about this as an intelligence failure and about Iran's connection, possible connection to these attacks. Did the president speak about that? Biden did not utter the word Iran, but he did warn, quote, any country against taking advantage of Israel right now, saying, I have one word, don't. Uh, Sullivan yesterday said that while it's clear that Iran has long provided most of the funding and training for Hamas, the U.S. government does not at the moment have evidence that Iran helped plan or direct these attacks. But he says they're looking for it. And this all comes as Biden is getting hit with a lot of blame from Republicans who say that his prisoner swap with Iran led to the attack. That swap unlocked $6 billion in Iranian funds for humanitarian causes only like medicine and food. Sullivan was asked whether the U.S. would look at refreezing those funds. And he said, quote, not a dollar of that money has been spent and I will leave it at that. He, however, did not commit one way or another about what would happen with those funds. That's NPR's Tamara Keith. Tam, thank you so much. You're welcome. The death toll from fighting between Israeli forces and Hamas fighters is climbing. More than 1,200 Israelis are known dead after that surprise attack over the weekend. That attack has prompted a massive military response by Israel that has included some 1,300 airstrikes on Gaza. Authorities there say at least 1,000 have been killed. Leila, you're in Jerusalem right now. From what you're seeing and hearing, are you getting the impression that this fighting is going to get even worse? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm in Jerusalem, Michelle, where it's relatively quiet. You can hear a few buses that are still taking tourists out, although the hotel I'm in front of is closed because so many have left. But there's no question that it's very different in the south, where the Israeli military has said it's secured the border with Gaza, and it appears they are now preparing for a ground invasion that will, quote, change the reality there. And there's been no cessation of rocket attacks coming in from Gaza. And now the first plane carrying advanced U.S. armaments since this war broke out landed in Israel, according to the Israeli military. And Leila, we just seem to be seeing more and more horrific images emerging from that weekend attack by Hamas. Yeah, I mean, that's right. The attack started Saturday, but every day we hear new accounts of what are being described as massacres in locations across the south of Israel. The latest, a kibbutz called Kafir Azra that was retaken by Israeli forces and inside... They found bodies of civilians in their homes and strewn in the streets, along with bodies of Hamas militants who breached these towns armed. Of course, Michelle, it's much harder to tell the stories out of Gaza because journalists who weren't already there aren't allowed in now. Gaza is under a new siege that has cut off food, fuel, water, and electricity. Israeli airstrikes have wiped out parts of entire families in what the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem calls a criminal policy of revenge. You know, and and in the midst of all of this, there are uh, some 150 hostages that are believed to have been taken to Gaza. Yeah, I mean, it feels like everyone here is one to two degrees of separation away from someone that's missing. In text chats, on social media, families are frantically trying to find any information about their loved ones. And that's how I ended up at the home of Ido Dan. In the kitchen, the dishes are piled up in the sink, and the playroom is set up for a party. Balloons that look like cupcakes float in the air, shiny streamers dangle, and a red heart is fastened to the staircase railing. Saturday was my twin girl's birthday. They're six years old. There's been no time to clean since five of Ido Don's family members disappeared on the day Hamas militants breached the Israeli border and killed so many. Before it started that Saturday morning, it was a flurry of preparation for Don's family at his home just north of Tel Aviv. My wife was preparing this table with all the, you know, the chocolates and stuff. And I saw my phone started like, bzz, 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 bzz. It was an alert for rocket fire, which is common in parts of Israel. He and his family were fine. So then, as a routine, I just asked my family in the south, which are on the border with Gaza, are you okay? And usually what they say is like, ah, we didn't sleep all night. We woke up very early. Now we're in the safe rooms, in the shelters. That's what they usually say. But this time it was different. He pulls out his phone. I'll just show it to you. Don opens his family group texts. So I'm asking them here, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And they go, very bad. We're being attacked with terrorists inside the kibbutz. We didn't really grasp what's going on. And then she goes, I hope we'll survive. His cousin is the first to warn the others in the text chain. So his family holed up in safe rooms in different homes. They heard gunfire, screaming. They smelled burning. He scrolled through hours of time-stamped texts. 8.59. This is an atrocity. It's horrible. It's horror. I love you all. I'm saying goodbye. There is no way to know. They're shooting here. And she sends us this heart, and she says, which means, I'm not sure we'll survive this. By the end of the day, his aunt Carmela Don was gone. 
So were two of her grandchildren, Sahar Calderon and her brother Erez, along with their father, Ofer. Carmela's other grandchild, Noya, a 12-year-old with special needs, is also missing. The day after we saw the videos from the Hamas, they were walking in the kibbutz with the guns and just shooting like ducks, people and kids, whole families. He and his family kept searching online for any sign of their loved ones. Then one of the children, Erez, was spotted by his older sister. She said, I was watching Instagram, and then I see a video of the Hamas, and I see Erez there, and they're holding him, they're capturing him. It's him. Don plays the video for me. So you're watching, I've seen this. So you're walking him away. The boy Don showed me earlier in a smiling picture with a gap between his two front teeth is in the video. His arms are held by a militant and he's being dragged away. What it says in Arabic is we don't hurt him, don't hurt him. Um, we're going to um, take him to Gaza. Don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. So does that make you feel like anything? Yeah, like it's a precious bargaining chip. That's why Don believes his family are hostages with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. His five family members are among dozens. Young music lovers who were dancing in the desert, children, a Holocaust survivor. And now the threat of execution looms. The Hamas military wing has said they'd kill one hostage for each Palestinian home that's targeted without a warning. So far, they haven't acted publicly on that threat. I ask if Don is worried that they might actually do this. I think I'm just choosing to ignore this. I think that those hostages are the most precious thing that Hamas has right now, and I think that they will keep them uh, safe. But something, he says, has changed. Maybe we should uh, recalculate all our predictions and assumptions about the Hamas because it's totally different this time. In many ways, I think that Hamas is ISIS. We saw such killings and murders and ruthless humiliation of bodies, we saw it only with ISIS. Oh, Layla, that's, that's, um, that is so hard. Does this show a major shift with Hamas and its tactics? Yeah, I mean, they were notorious for suicide bombings on buses in the 2000s, but those were small-scale operations compared to this highly choreographed invasion by over a 1,000 fighters. And Israeli officials are now frequently comparing it to ISIS, which they didn't in the past. And it's also coming in the context of a powder keg reality where I am right now, a far-right government in Israel that's expanded settlements in the occupied West Bank, a year that's been deadlier for Palestinians in the West Bank than any year since 2005. A time where there is no peace process or political solution to end the occupation of Palestinians. And there is real concern that this war could lead to regional conflict. Leia, thanks for this reporting, and we're going to hear from you later this hour. Thanks, Michelle. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the testimony from a former executive of the Trump Organization who's a defendant in an ongoing civil trial targeting former President Trump's business practices. It's 19 minutes past 7. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. Merrimack Repertory Theater with Gaslight, a new adaptation of the gripping psychological thriller opening October 18th. Tickets at MRT.org. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at LaCuchara.com. 
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition, a radio program that is consistent. You hear the same voices at the same time every morning, no matter what is happening in the world. You hear familiar voices. This morning, we bring you news of a huge legal settlement. Bringing often unfamiliar and surprising facts. Unidentified anomalous phenomena. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Clouds are in our forecast for today. Temperatures in the 60s. Tonight, a slight chance of showers, lows around 50 degrees, and sunshine tomorrow with highs in the 60s. It is 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. This note now, every time a mass shooting occurs in America, the questions begin. Who did it and why, and why can't we make these shootings stop? The Gun Machine podcast from WBUR explores guns, government, and the Massachusetts roots of guns in America. Listen and follow The Gun Machine on your podcast app. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep, a leading voice in artificial intelligence favors regulation of it. Mustafa Suleiman co-founded the AI firm DeepMind, and he worries about the consequences of his own creations. Suleiman says governments need to prevent anyone from using AI to destabilize the world. We have to start really thinking about the precautionary principle. I mean, the consequences are so vast and potentially so huge, both positive and negative, that this is a moment when we need strong governments and proactive intervention. By now, the real and potential dangers of AI are well known. Various applications can make it easier to commit fraud, spread misinformation, or analyze data to surveil people. At some point, high-powered computers may outthink or outwit the human race. Suleiman's book, The Coming Wave, recounts his efforts to warn his fellow tech entrepreneurs in California. It's a little awkward in Silicon Valley sometimes because, um, you know, that it's just not the default culture. Um, I think, you know, American culture in general and Silicon Valley in particular has benefited enormously from relentless optimism. And I am an optimist. I, I, I'm a builder. I'm a creator. I have a new startup now called Inflection AI and creating an AI called Pi. Uh, which stands for personal intelligence, which is a personal AI, a conversational, fluent, interactive AI. Hmm. So I believe in making things and building things at huge scale. But at the same time, you know, I think wisdom in the 21st century is about trying to hold multiple contradictory ideas in tension at the same time. Okay, help me think this through then. You're making a comparison with nuclear nonproliferation. 
which is something that is obviously not perfect. Sometimes another country gets a nuclear weapon or gets close to one, but there are all kinds of systems in place around the world to limit the access to nuclear technology and especially technology that can be used to make a bomb. You're saying you would like something like that for artificial intelligence. But let me ask about another factor that you raise. I took a note of one of the subheads of one of your chapters. It is the plummeting cost of power. What is that mm. when it comes to computing, and how does that complicate the effort to regulate or contain it? I mean, AI is an amplifier of good power and bad power. AI is going to be a tool to help people make predictions and get things done in the real world and the digital world. Your AI is going to learn to book things for you on the internet, buy things for you, initiate you know, new creative endeavors. It's going to be like a research assistant or a creative you know, partner um, helping you to get things done. And many people will use that for you know, incredibly good outcomes, and some people will use it to sow instability. So the plummeting cost of power means that it's going to be cheaper and easier to get things done at scale in the digital world. That's what makes me wonder about the analogy with nuclear nonproliferation. Making a nuclear weapon is hard and expensive, especially if you need to make the material for it. You're telling me that it's going to get cheaper and cheaper all the time to deploy artificial intelligence in ways that may be harmful. Does that make containment impossible? That's exactly the challenge that we face. If, you, if um, intelligence follows the same cost curve trajectory as the microchip, which has come down a million fold in the last 50 years, right? How do we create contained technologies that make sure that they don't end up representing a threat to the nation state? Because people who ultimately may have state-like powers, you know, the ability to really organize at huge scale, to intervene in cyber networks, to attack our security, you know, that is just going to get cheaper and cheaper and easier to, to access. Can we dwell uh, in a terrifying way for a moment on the risks when you talk about the risks to the nation state? We're just talking about countries, whether they're a democratic country or an authoritarian country. And I think you're telling me that right now, in order to have enormous power over people, the government of China needs a million people in an intelligence agency, hypothetically. And it could be that one person ultimately has that kind of power to surveil people. Is that the kind of danger you're talking about? That is unfortunately correct. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, but power is becoming compressed, right? Look at these image generation models. Every image that has been put on the open web, that has been openly and publicly available, is now compressed into a two gigabyte file, which can be used to generate new images from scratch. And anybody can get access to that two gigabyte file in open source. But you're exactly right. It also represents a very new dynamic in the unfolding of power in our civilization. What are the odds that the nation state, as we were saying, uh, can possibly regulate this, particularly given that there are a couple hundred of them in the world? We've regulated many such complex things in the past. Look at how, and, and every new technology that arises initially feels scary and unfamiliar and confusing. In the book, um, I found this incredible anecdote from the arrival of the first steam train in Liverpool. The member of parliament for Liverpool and the prime minister at the time, along with a huge celebration party, were so excited to see this new beast, as they called it, arriving on the tracks, that they actually stood on the tracks to welcome the train coming in. 
And in fact, the train, they had no concept that the train wouldn't stop. Hmm. And it actually ran through the celebration party and killed the member of parliament. And so that's how unfamiliar and strange and obscure things can be. And then within an instant, trains become a tool which are, you know, sort of unremarkable and completely integrated within our lives. And so we've done this many times with airline safety, with electricity, with nuclear safety. At first, it seems alien and confusing. And then very quickly, we put in place extremely rigorous safety frameworks for governing these technologies. I think that we have to be confident and optimistic that if we engage proactively in our governance mechanisms and stop denigrating them and putting public servants down, you know, we can we can make this work. Mustafa Suleiman is the author of The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma, which could be summarized as a call for us to step out of the way of the train. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. This was great. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are coming up next. And at 745 on Morning Edition, we preview the start of the Bruins season tonight. It's 730. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. As Israel amasses troops near Gaza, the first shipment of U.S. military aid has reached the country, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to Israel to help assess the country's needs. At least 1,200 have been killed in Israel and 1,055 Palestinians killed by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. This is the Biden administration says it's in talks about opening a corridor for civilians to escape Gaza. And Piers Leila Fadl has more. It's much harder to tell the stories out of Gaza because journalists who weren't already there aren't allowed in now and civilians are trapped. Gaza is under a new siege that has cut off food, fuel, water and electricity. Israeli airstrikes have wiped out parts of entire families in what the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem calls a, quote, criminal policy of revenge. NPR's Leila Fadl reporting. Meanwhile, President Biden wants stepped-up security at Jewish organizations around the U.S. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. President Biden says he's directing the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI to work closely with state and local law enforcement to identify and disrupt any domestic threat that could emerge in connection with the attacks orchestrated and carried out by Hamas. Biden also stressed that there's no need for hate in America, not against Jews, not against Muslims, not against anybody. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Officials from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security are in Massachusetts today. This is the second day they're assessing the influx of migrants to the state, including the strain on the state's shelter system. The federal agency says it's working with Boston and state officials to maximize support. Agency representatives also say they're looking at ways to enforce consequences for people who are not here legally. A woman who says she was sexually assaulted by a former doctor at Brigham and Women's Hospital is taking legal action. Mimi Detroni filed a lawsuit in Suffolk Superior Court yesterday. She alleges that when she went to rheumatologist Derek Todd for a joint and skin condition, he conducted medically unnecessary breast and gynecological exams. She's encouraging other former patients of Todd's to speak out. When you trust someone to help you, you see them and you're very vulnerable. And when they violate that trust and they hurt you instead of heal you, it can be very frightening and not easy to process. Todd was terminated from the hospital in July amid complaints from other patients. Last month, he signed an agreement to not practice medicine. Todd's lawyer did not respond to a request for comment, but has previously said that Todd believes he has done nothing wrong. Commuter rail service in Lynn is expected to return in December, nearly a year ahead of schedule. In an announcement expected today, the MBTA says a temporary platform will open in two months. The entire Lynn station has been closed since last October for a reconstruction project. That entire project won't be finished until 2030. A memorial service takes place in Cambridge today to honor the life of Brian O'Donovan, the voice behind the GBH program Celtic Sojourn. He also helped bring men's World Cup matches to Foxborough in 1994 and was the first general manager of the New England Revolution. O'Donovan died last week after a battle with cancer. He was 60 six years old. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. The Bruins drop their puck on the regular season tonight when they host the Chicago Blackhawks. Also tonight, Celtics visit the Philadelphia 76ers for an exhibition game. Mostly cloudy skies in our forecast today. Temperatures in the mid to upper 60s. Tonight, a slight chance of showers. Lows around 50 and tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs in the upper 60s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm Leila Fadel in Jerusalem. Israeli military officials are saying the country is now ready to, quote, go on the offense to change the reality within Gaza. Since Hamas militants launched a surprise attack that killed so many, Israel has mobilized more than 300,000 reservists. Here in Israel, you see them at the airport as they return, at gas stations leading to the south and to the border with the Gaza Strip, and volunteers are helping with logistics and food. But any sort of ground offensive will be complicated. Because Hamas has taken taken some 150 hostages, and they're believed to be in Gaza. The group has threatened to execute a hostage every time Israel strikes a Palestinian home without warning. So far, they haven't publicly acted on that threat. And that's where I started when I spoke with Tamir Heyman, the former head of Israeli military intelligence. I want to start with Hamas's military wing saying they will execute hostages if the bombardment in Gaza continues. You know, with your experience, what do you do in a situation like this? With all the pain involved, this uh, should not interfere with the operational concept and the strategic vision of our goals in uh, Gaza. Hamas must not get the benefit of its terror activities and the atrocities that it inflicted on the Israel society and uh, presenting civilians as a human shield is another war crime, but it will not guarantee it the the shield that it uh, uh, seeks. So it won't change any calculations militarily? No, it will not. You wrote that there are three components required to achieve Israel's goals, bringing an end to and replacing Hamas rule in the Gaza Strip, the destruction of Hamas military capabilities, and creating the conditions to allow the release of hostages. Is this a moment where Israel is trying to replace Hamas rule, or or do you see it that way? I think we should create design a new architecture, a new concept, and it should not be, it cannot be the concept that was failed. What would that look like though? Replace it with what? Well, there there can be a new architecture, which is after destroying the military capability of the military wing of Hamas. Hamas will maintain its uh, social and religious status. Okay, it's a, it's a, you can't really eliminate all Hamas. Hamas is a religious, cultural, social organization, and it has a military wing. The, the military wing can be eliminated by brute force, and this is what we are doing right now. You point out, though, that in the past, uh, these operations have not eliminated the military wing. This is the fifth Gaza war. Why is this going to be different than the four times before? It is unprecedented what we have suffered. And the retaliation will be equivalent to the suffering we have suffered. And I agree. I agree. It is very difficult to eliminate totally the military capability. But we can eliminate totally the capability that were crucial to create the special capabilities of Hamas and all of the, the infrastructure to launch the attack on Israel. The intelligence failure in this moment, as uh, this is what you did for your career, um, this is what you do. I mean, what led to this point that this attack was even possible? This is this will be the main focus of the after-war investigation, and uh, you 
cannot really uh, ignore the fact that we are talking about catastrophe, total failure, uh, disaster. There, there is no, there's not enough words that can describe the failure of the intelligence concept earlier and the operational uh, response. Right now, digging into that wound is harmful for focusing on our military victory that we need to achieve. Is Israel prepared for a multi-front war? Do you see this as something that will be just with Hamas or something that you'll have to deal with on the north and beyond, a regional war? Right now, we are, we are fully deployed and we are ready for war in two fronts. We prefer to focus all our attention in Gaza, but if Hezbollah in the north will evoke too much violence and, re and, and our response will be as needed, we can escalate to war. I think that both sides, Israel and Hezbollah, do not want to escalate this, the tension in the north to a full-scale war. In the state of Lebanon right now, it will be destructive in a manner that, Hezbo that Hezbollah would not, could never explain that to civilians in Lebanon. So he knows that. He wants to be involved below the threshold of a full-scale escalation. Major General Tamir Heyman, former head of Israel's military intelligence, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Republicans are preparing to choose a new leader to serve as House Speaker. But while that's happening, a member of their conference, Congressman George Santos of New York, is facing 10 additional federal felony charges. Prosecutors say Santos ran a credit card scam that targeted his own political donors. NPR's Brian Mann has this report. George Santos, the freshman Republican whose district includes parts of Long Island and Queens, has admitted lying to voters about most of his life story, including his family escaping the Holocaust, not true, his career, mostly fiction, and his education, which is nothing like he described. In May, federal prosecutors arrested him and charged him with 13 felony counts, alleging his political campaign was rife with corruption, including wire fraud and false statements to the Federal Election Commission. In a superseding indictment filed yesterday in federal court, U.S. Attorney Breon Peace expanded those charges to 23 counts. Santos, who's denied any criminal wrongdoing, is now accused of identity theft and credit card fraud that allegedly targeted his political donors. Prosecutors describe one instance where a contributor texted Santos billing information for two credit cards. Santos then allegedly attempted to run up more than $44,000 worth of charges without the contributor's knowledge or authorization. Santos is also accused of lying on federal forms to inflate his fundraising numbers as part of a fraudulent effort to bilk money out of the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee. These new charges come less than a week after his former campaign treasurer pleaded guilty to similar federal charges linked to her work for the Santos campaign. Santos, who also faces a House ethics probe, has been relieved of committee assignments, but otherwise serves as a member in full standing of the Republican conference. This week, Santos announced he's backing Congressman Jim Jordan in the House speaker fight. He could be a key vote. Santos is due back in court October 27th. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Coming up, a conversation about defining war crimes in the context of the Israel-Hamas conflict.
Mostly cloudy skies in our forecast today. Temperatures in the 60s. Tonight, a slight chance of showers with lows around 50 degrees. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with temperatures getting into the upper 60s. It is 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at SunbugSolar.com. In business news, Boston-based Hemanetics is expanding into Canada with a $253 million acquisition. The medical device company says buying the company Opsins will allow it to expand its cardiology technology. The deal is expected to close by the end of January. A nursing home on the Cape will soon be transformed into a family shelter. The South Dennis Healthcare Building was sold to a local housing advocacy group for about $4 million. The Cape Cod Times reports the nursing home operator will continue to lease the property as it works to relocate current residents. It's not clear when the shelter will open. An award-winning Providence bagel shop is moving to Kendall Square this winter. Rebel Bagel is known for its hand-rolled bagels and breakfast sandwiches. Chef and owner Milena Pagon lived in Cambridge while earning her degree in chemical engineering at MIT. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The Bruins begin their regular season when they host the Chicago Blackhawks tonight. And the team looks a bit different than it did a year ago. For a preview, we're joined by Fluto Shinzawa from The Athletic. Good morning. Good morning, Deb. So the last time we saw the Bruins, it was May. They were the best team in the NHL, but they wasted a three-games-to-one lead to the Florida Panthers and got bounced in the first round of the playoffs. How's the team? team dealt with that. Well, it just goes to show, Deb, that you can make history all you want in the regular season. 65 wins last year, 135 points, and yeah, uh, only three games of consequence when it really mattered in the playoffs, and they're out. So yes, that, that leaves some scar tissue for everybody, team, coach, general manager, players, and we've seen a lot of turnover, including some generational turnover, so a lot for the Bruins to deal with for this upcoming season. Yeah, And you mentioned the, the generational changes, Patrice Bergeron, David Krejci, both retired. So who do you think the team will rely on to take their place? Well, it's going to be Pavel Zaka and Charlie Coyle. Those are their two centers that are going to be taking the bulk 
of the shifts that Patrice and David leave behind. Um, so they'll be critical players, but I think they're really going to be leaning on their star players. And they do have a pretty good handful of, of chain pullers, if you will. David Pasternak, 61 goals last year. And they also have some other star players, Charlie McAvoy, Hampus Lindholm. And then in net, you have the, the best tandem in the league last year, Linus Allmark, Jeremy Swayman. Linus was the best goalie in the league last year. Right, right. And so do you think they'll change strategy at all, or do you think everybody's going to get acclimated to this this new team makeup? It's going to be a lot of change, Deb. Well, one thing that's good for them in terms of a constant is the coach. Jim Montgomery was a new coach last year, taking over for Bruce Cassidy. This year, he's in his second season. He's more comfortable. The Bruins, the players that are coming back, are are very familiar with what he wants to do in terms of strategy. That said, he is going to introduce some tweaks. He wants to play faster. He wants them to play more physical in front of the nets at both ends. And then he wants the defensemen, especially in the offensive zone, to hold the puck a little bit more and create a little bit more anxiety for opponents when they're defending the Bruins. Now, Brad Marchand, new team captain, holds the record also as the most suspended player in league history. So how's that going to work? How do you think he'll rise to the new role? Yeah, those things don't really add up, right? Captain, leader, (laughs) responsible person, and then eight suspensions. And this is a player who has has licked the face of an opponent. Granted, that was a few years ago. But yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's a very different personality than Patrice. Um, if you look at the way that Bergeron carried himself for a long time here, just the ultimate professional, very uh, intuitive in terms of reading his teammates, his coaches, knowing what they needed in terms of an attaboy, a little pick-me-up, perhaps a kick in the butt. Um, Brad, um, he, he's a little, he's wired a little bit differently, but nobody works harder than Brad, including Patrice and Zdeno Char, the previous captain who was here before. So that will be the way that Brad leads. He's going to lead the charge. He's going to be right in the face of opponents, and his teammates will have uh, no choice but to fall right in line behind Brad. So a little bit different, but very well deserving. Even if his reputation around the league, you you might question, okay, why is this guy captain? You'll be fine. And I, I know, you know, it's so tough, especially after last season. But how do you predict this season will go? For the uh, I think they have enough star power, as noted before. The coach is here. Um, they brought in some new young players um, that are eager to make their mark in the league. And they have the goaltending. Um, so uh, assuming good health, I think they can win at least one playoff round, which is one more than they did win last year. Okay. Gludo Shinzawa, senior writer for The Athletic, covering the Bruins. Thanks for being with us on Morning Edition. My pleasure, Dan. And coming up in about a half hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, rising concerns about a neo-Nazi group that has held demonstrations targeting migrants living in shelters in Massachusetts. It's 10 minutes before 8. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. I'm Robin Young. And I'm Scott Tong. As the war between Israel and Hamas militants continues, the Israeli military is stepping up airstrikes on Gaza. Hamas has threatened to kill Israeli hostages. It's estimated that at least 150 people are being held by Hamas. We will continue coverage of the conflict. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. 
And here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. A power plant in Gaza is expected to run out of fuel in the next several hours as Israel continues its strikes in response to the attacks by Hamas. House Republicans vote on a new House speaker today, and ExxonMobil has reached a nearly $60 billion deal to acquire Pioneer Natural Resources. It's a move that will increase its fossil fuel production in Texas and New Mexico. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. Cloudy skies expected today. Highs in the 60s. It is 54 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. One of the richest women in the world believes art museums should be free. Everyone deserves access to art, no matter where they live or what their situation is. That's Alice Walton, one of the heirs to the Walmart fortune and a billionaire. Today, one of her foundation's Art Bridges is announcing it is giving away $40 million in grants to dozens of museums around the country. Alice Walton is also associated with the Walton Family Foundation, which is a supporter of NPR. And NPR's Elizabeth Blair has more. Alice Walton has spent tens of millions of dollars buying art. Much of it can be seen at Crystal Bridges, the Arkansas museum she founded that opened in 2011. She believes the pandemic has made art more important than ever. It sparks things in us that take us out of the everyday. We see things through someone else's eyes. 64 museums around the country will receive grants from Walton's Art Bridges Foundation, ranging from 56000 to more than $2 million. And with that money, Walton wants them to focus on attracting people who've never gone through their doors, whether it's by extending free hours or offering free meals. We intentionally didn't put a lot of constraints on the utilization because each community is different and and, uh, each museum is different and they need to figure out what will work best for them. Maria Gazdombide is the executive director of the Museo de Arte de Puerto Rico. It's getting one of the grants. She says the money will be transformational for the museum. It's housed in a neoclassical building that was once a hospital. There's this preconception that we might not be welcome in that space or the space itself, the architecture of the space itself is imposing. And so we want to break down those barriers. Gazdam Bide says the museum is planning family days that will include music, theater, dance and poetry. The grant will also allow them to extend free admission hours on Thursdays. She says ever since the Puerto Rican debt crisis of 2014, energy prices have been stratospheric. She does not foresee a day when they'll be free all the time. Of course, we would like our museum to be free and we're finding ways of maximizing the time that it is free for people, but we can't with the kind of energy bills that we face each month. Walton is happy to help with these issues, but she also thinks long-term sustainability for museums comes from local support. I hope it gives them the incentive to reach deep in their own communities to those that are able to help fund free access. 
In other words, find your local Alice Walton to help fund your museum. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Across most of the southern U.S., distance has become the biggest hurdle to getting a safe, legal abortion. Hundreds of miles in multiple states can separate women from health care centers that perform the procedure. In Memphis, Christopher Blank from member station WKNO reports that abortion rights activists are hoping billboards can help along the way. Everyone knows her as Queen. We're not using her last name due to privacy concerns, but here in Memphis, she's hard to miss. When we meet for a drive out to see a billboard, she's wearing a bright blue t-shirt that says, I will forever aid and abet abortion. People make mistakes. As a hairstylist, she's heard them all. Her salon is often a place for sex ed, not taught in local schools. Her own story is front and center. It's not top secret. Everybody knows I had an abortion. That was decades ago, when it was legal in 50 states. Today, if a client reveals she's considering an abortion, Queen will point the way. One way, really, north on Interstate 55. We're just outside West Memphis, Arkansas, when she spots the first billboard. Yes! God's plan includes abortion. It does. It does. I agree. This is one of six new abortion rights messages along this stretch of rural highway. They're the work of a group called Shout Your Abortion. Its founder, Amelia Bono, says this route in particular, leading to the only legal providers within hundreds of miles, needed a counterpoint to billboards opposing abortion. I-55 is just covered with these hateful, judgmental, shaming, intentionally traumatizing anti-abortion billboards. Some invoke the Bible. Others, like those placed by Minnesota-based Pro-Life Across America, have pictures of smiling babies and a phone number. We don't argue. We don't use harsh words. We never even use the word abortion on our billboards. The group's founder, Marianne Kuharski, says the hotline refers women to organizations that provide prenatal screenings and counseling at so-called crisis pregnancy centers. But for tens of thousands of women who opt for an abortion— The real crisis is getting around state laws that place it out of reach, says Bono. That's what these laws do. They don't actually stop people from having abortions, but they make people struggle in order to have abortions. Some former abortion providers, like Planned Parenthood of Tennessee and North Mississippi, now offer what they call navigational services. Here's CEO Ashley Cofield. We're handing out gas cards, we're making hotel arrangements, we're buying plane tickets, train tickets, bus tickets, whatever works best for the individual, we're meeting them where they are. The destination for almost everyone is the same, Carbondale, Illinois. There are two clinics in this small college town near the southern border. In the first six months of 2023, Illinois saw a 70% increase in abortions. This is one of two surgical suites that we have. Jennifer Pepper runs Choices, a Memphis-based reproductive health center that moved its abortion services here a year ago, just after Tennessee's total ban. And the physician performs the procedure for them, which takes anywhere from five to 15 minutes. This may be the biggest surprise after all the planning and hours of driving. It's fast. Illinois got rid of measures other states previously used to discourage abortions. There's no waiting period, no parental permissions for minors, no questions about how to dispose of a fetus. The vast majority of Choices clients come from Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee, which is why Pepper says the billboards on the last leg of the trip matter. We've heard from patients that it felt just really good to see an affirming message. On our return to Memphis, Queen says the messages lend support to what can be an emotional trip. 
it's going to give some of them more courage, more strength, more belief. It's going to ease their souls. That's what it's going to do. While the signs advertise abortion as a normal part of reproductive health, they also underscore a new reality, the long drive for women in the South to get one. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Blank in Memphis. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by University of New England, Maine's largest private university, on campuses in Portland and coastal Biddeford and online, une.edu. And The Huntington, presenting Fat Ham. The 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. Now through October 29th, huntingtontheater.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel strikes Hamas targets in Gaza as Secretary of State Blinken heads to Israel to provide U.S. support. It's Wednesday, October 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, we talk with an international expert about defining war crimes in the context of the Israel-Hamas conflict. The killing of civilians who are participating in a music festival, that's a war crime. Hostage taken is a war crime. Also this hour, rising concerns about a neo-Nazi group that is protesting migrants living in shelters in Massachusetts. They're a white supremacist group, and in the past few years, they've really doubled down on New England. Plus, the South Carolina redistricting case that's before the U.S. Supreme Court today. Forecast, partly cloudy today, highs in the 60s. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The White House says the U.S. will ramp up its military aid to Israel in coming days. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. is sending more military aid to Israel, including U.S. planes. The U.S. already provides billions of dollars in military aid to Israel every year. But Sullivan says U.S. forces will not be on the ground in Israel. What we are focused on when we talk about sending experts, uh, it is people who can work on intelligence, who can work on overall planning, who can work on coordination with the Israeli government. Uh, We are not currently sending forces uh, to Israel. Sullivan also says there are ongoing conversations with Israel and Egypt on how Palestinian citizens in Gaza could leave the area, which Israel has blockaded for 16 years. Israeli strikes in Gaza and a siege have cut off food, water and power in the region. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Officials in the U.S. say there are no credible threats against synagogues or Jewish organizations in this country. NPR's Brian Mann reports New York City Mayor Eric Adams is urging congregations to be vigilant. The FBI, New York State Police, and the NYPD all say they're monitoring social media and other sources. So far, there are not active threats against Jewish communities or congregations inside the U.S. But speaking at a press event, Mayor Adams urged Jewish leaders to be cautious. Number one, they should designate a security team or personnel within the synagogues to do perimeter search and views, observations 
See something, say something, do something. Adams said he's concerned about possible lone wolf-style attacks. He made no mention of concerns about attacks on mosques, but thanked the city's Muslim leaders, who he said have offered support for New York City's large Jewish community. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. Meanwhile, President Biden will meet Jewish leaders today at the White House to discuss support for Israel and his work to stop anti-Semitism. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the war between Israel and Hamas may pose additional economic concerns. Yellen says she expects a U.S. inflation can be contained without prompting a recession. She pointed to the job market. I still see um, as the base case for the United States um, a so-called soft landing. Our labor market is obviously very resilient continues to perform very well. In its most recent report, the Labor Department said the U.S. economy added a robust 336,000 jobs last month. House Republicans are supposed to hold a leadership election today and select the next Speaker of the House. The two candidates are House Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan. Republicans hope to settle this leadership question behind closed doors before taking the issue to the full House floor for a vote. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Democrats on Beacon Hill say they hope to get a firearms overhaul measure to Governor Healy by January. House lawmakers heard hours of testimony on the new gun control bill yesterday. The measure would strengthen the state's assault weapons ban, limit where guns can be carried, and would crack down on unregistered so-called ghost guns. John Rosenthal is founder of the organization Stop Handgun violence. I firmly believe that this bill will save lives without any inconvenience to law-abiding gun owners. But opponents say the bill punishes gun owners with burdensome regulations. The Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association argues that the bill would not reduce crime. The state Senate is working on its own gun control proposal. Northeastern University says three of its students who were in Israel during last week's attack by Hamas have left the country safely. The school says two of the three students were studying in Israel. The third was visiting from Greece. All of them were able to get out with help from a company that helps coordinate Northeastern study abroad programs. A Massachusetts state senator is one of the National Guard members who's been deployed to help families in the state's emergency shelter system. John Vilas is a Democrat from Westfield. It's not clear how long he'll be deployed. Governor Healy announced in August that she would deploy about 250 Guard members to help families living in state-subsidized hotels that are not staffed with social service workers. The man dubbed the unofficial mayor of Boston's Chinatown has died. Frank Chin was known for establishing political power in the neighborhood. The Boston Globe reports that he died at his Boston home on Monday. Chin was 91 years old. U.S. Coast Guard officials say they've recovered the remaining debris from the wreckage of the Titan submersible, and that includes human remains. The submersible disappeared in June in the North Atlantic on a voyage to the wreck of the Titanic. Officials say they will hold a public hearing about the implosion after they finish analyzing evidence. The time is six minutes past eight. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. 
Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. The Bruins' regular season begins at the Garden tonight. They'll be hosting the Chicago Blackhawks. And looks like we'll see mostly cloudy skies today. Temperatures will be in the 60s. A slight chance of showers tonight. Lows around 50. Sunshine tomorrow, though, with temperatures in the upper 60s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. And MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Jerusalem. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning, Leila. Could you just start us off by describing the mood where you are? I mean, here in Jerusalem, also in Tel Aviv, it is not the bustling city it usually is. There is quiet here, tension, people in their homes, because there is a war. And Leila, back here in Washington, D.C. Last night, hundreds of people gathered to show support for the victims of the Hamas attacks and also to take comfort in each other. My name is Hunter Benson. My first reaction was just very heartbroken and distraught. My name is Matthew Gever. A lot of emotions, feeling upset, angry, sad, just tired. It's hard because it just feels like it's not going to stop for a while. And after a while, it just kind of go numb. Miguel Tablum felt profound sadness and anger because we find ourselves again here after all this time with needless loss of life for absolutely no reason. It's easy to get caught up in anger and hate and emotion, but just remember everyone outside is a human being somewhere with a family and just remember that before you start demonizing. vigil was held at the synagogue of the Otis Israel Congregation. Among those who turned out were Samantha Goldstein, Robin Weiner, and Yash Halberston. I'm seeing terrible reports of just barbaric acts and um, needed to be around the community tonight for, for some support. Here to support Israel and because what's happened is just absolutely atrocious and heartbreaking. I'm in a lot of pain and I think what's most important for Israelis to see now is as many bodies and flags out in solidarity with them because they're in the most painful position possible and they're grieving and they don't have the privilege like us to just grieve. This is the minimum that I could do is just show up and show solidarity with them. Hamas is the group that was behind this weekend's attacks in southern Israel. We thought it would be helpful to learn more about the group. So we called Mohammed Abu Nimr for that. He is a professor of international conflict resolution at American University, and he is an authority on the group. And he reminded us that Hamas had a decades-long history before its takeover of Gaza. Hamas is both political party, uh, but also a military wing that has arms and they engage in 
in the fight against Israeli occupation since 1987. Hamas is one of two major Palestinian political factions. The other is Fatah, a political party that dominates the Palestinian Authority and controls the occupied West Bank, which is about 40 miles away from Gaza's northern border. Fatah and Hamas have been fighting each other for political control since Hamas won a majority in the 2006 Palestinian parliamentary elections. What you have in Gaza is just another system, military, political, economic. It has all the infrastructure to be a political authority that's running the lives of two and a half million people uh, since 2007. The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Ramallah has failed to compete with Hamas in Gaza. Israel and Hamas have battled before. Each time the fighting ended inconclusively. Abu Nimr says the lack of progress toward peace has fueled Palestinian despair. For many Palestinians, they don't see any any value, any hope in the negotiation between the Israeli and the Palestinian. This is the longest negotiation in the history of any conflict. They've been negotiating over 30 years, yet the conditions on the ground Every year they become worse and worse. Abu Nimr says Israel's declaration of a quote-unquote complete siege on one of the most densely populated places on earth amounts to what he called collective punishment that dehumanizes civilians. Gaza is the largest open prison in the world with no mobility outside except with the few permissions that Israel give to the workers. Now, its prisoners will be living in the darkness. He has taught students about peacemaking for more than 35 years, and Abu Nimr warns fighting won't lead to a resolution. We've been struggling with the same deep-rooted, intractable conflict for over a century. Militarization, weaponization, force, and violence will not persuade a Palestinian to give up their right to live dignified and peaceful life. It will not also persuade Israelis and grant them security. Over their decades of conflict, Hamas and Israel have traded accusations of war crimes, and these past few days are no exception. And war crimes is a concept rooted in the Geneva Conventions of 1949, rules intended to prevent a repeat of the horrors of World War II. But what does it actually mean? What actions by either party could constitute war crimes? I asked Fernando Travesi about this. He is a human rights lawyer who's worked in conflict zones around the world as director of the International Center for Transitional Justice. If you are a party to a conflict, you have to follow the principle of distinction, meaning that you have to distinguish between civilians and combatants, between civilian objects and military targets. You have to follow the principle of proportionality, meaning that you can exercise violence, but you have to plan in order to minimize the impact on civilian population. And you have to follow the principle of military necessity. You commit a war crime when you violate some very explicit prohibitions that are in the international humanitarian law. Has Hamas committed war crimes? Yes, I think it's clear, and we've seen that on our screens. The premeditated killing of civilians who are participating in a music festival, that's a war crime. Hostage-taking is a war crime. Targeting civilians or killing, extrajudicial killings, that's a war crime. Hamas function as a government, does it matter for purposes of this whether they are or are not? 
No, it doesn't matter what is the political consideration or is. So Hamas and Israel, both parties are obliged by international humanitarian law and they both can commit war crimes if they don't follow the basic principle and rules of international humanitarian law. So now let's speak about Israel's response. Um, do you think that Israel is committing war crimes? Israel face a very difficult challenge, which is to distinguish <laughs> combatants from civilians, which is especially difficult in a situation like in Gaza, so small, so dense and populated. A military siege should allow at any moment that basic necessities like food or water or medical care is accessible to civilian population. Otherwise, it can be a war crime. Indiscriminate bombardments are a war crime if you don't take all necessary precautions to distinguish civilian and military targets. When you attack medical facilities, that's another war crime, no matter if there are soldiers there. So the standards are equal for both sides, and they both have to abide by them. We hear occasionally some of these cases resolve years after the conflicts have ended. Liberia and Sierra Leone and Serbia. Is there really a path to accountability here for what we have seen? You can find some level of international criminal accountability at some point with the International Criminal Court. They have an open investigation for a number of years. You have other criminal accountability avenues. You have the International Court of Justice. So you have other levels of accountability at the Human Rights Council and the UN, and we can criticize the impact they may have. You can have other accountability processes focusing on the victims and their needs and their experiences more than in the perpetrators. In this particular case, I think it's obvious it will take years of collective effort to bring a sense of justice and to bring justice to the victims. It will take generations. It's a very long path, but it's the only way to go towards long and sustainable peace in the future. What is it that you think we should be thinking about when we think about the victims? We need to find a way to work with moderate sectors of both societies, pushing for mutual recognition of the crimes, just to avoid binary analysis and to acknowledge the suffering of all the victims, and starting to find ways victims can be repaired. And of course, we need to talk about the root causes of conflict and grievances, but that has to be not only with the perpetrator's focus, but also with the victim's needs and impact on their lives. Have you seen that? Yes. Colombia is in the way of solving a 50-year-old conflict that has been dividing the country completely. You've mentioned Sierra Leone, you've mentioned Liberia, but you know you cannot work at the political level if there is not a minimum of political will, and there isn't here. That's human rights lawyer Fernando Travesi. He's executive director of the International Center for Transitional Justice. Mr. Travesi, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Leila, let's hear more from you about uh, just what's the atmosphere like in Jerusalem right now. As I was listening to your conversation, you know, as I was listening to that, we're getting messages about how in Gaza, the fuel is actually running out. In 10 to 12 hours, they probably will have no electricity with this siege that has cut off fuel, food, water, and electricity. So these ideas of war crimes, they're very real here on both sides. And the idea that there are human beings that are suffering on both sides, that's also very, very real here. And, and as you were speaking earlier about the fact that the images of the the, the, the atrocities that have people the experience atro- yes. there are just very real and raw. How are you seeing this yeah. there? Are, people, are you seeing this on people's faces? Is there a sort of a somber yes. feeling there right now? There is 
There's a sadness everywhere, Michelle. Sadness, but also a lot of anger and a danger of demonization fully of both sides because they're angry about losing their loved ones. Um, and so here, you know, you're seeing text groups looking for loved ones, missing people providing DNA to identify bodies. I mean, there have been massacres here. That's Leila Fadel in Jerusalem. She and her team are there through, throughout the week. We'll hear from more from you. And Leila, thanks so much for your reporting and being there on the ground. And thanks to you and your team. And you'll stay with us throughout the hour. Of course. This is NPR News. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Maui is welcoming back visitors two months after wildfires tore through the island. Some locals have mixed feelings. It's 19 minutes past 8. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. The Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, on view now. Learn more at PEM.org. And Brown University's Master's in Healthcare Leadership, an accelerated one-year program transforming healthcare leaders professional.brown.edu. There's a landmark environmental justice agreement. It's aimed at fixing long-standing sanitation issues in a rural, predominantly black Alabama county. Can you imagine going in your bathroom and it's backed up with waste? Sanitation should be a right no matter what. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Residents of Lowndes County tell their story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Cloudy skies in our forecast today. Temperatures in the 60s. It is 54 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Winchester Natural Health, services focusing on conditions like endometriosis, thyroid support, and pain management. WinchesterNaturalHealth.com. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Social service providers working with the thousands of new migrant families in Massachusetts say they're increasingly concerned about extremists. Demonstrations against migrants have been reported across the country. In Massachusetts, a New England-based neo-Nazi group has staged more than a half-dozen demonstrations at hotels and other places where the state is housing immigrant families. Some families had to be moved to a different hotel in Framingham after a recent protest by the group. And they created such, you know, anxiety Um, that pretty much that hotel did not renew their contract with the Commonwealth. 
Lino Covarubias is CEO of Jewish Family Services of Metro West, a resettlement agency working with the state to assist some of the migrant families in Framingham. We had to meet in a parking lot near the new Framingham Hotel because he says the owners are worried about hate groups. Now, the hotel management does, does not want any reporters in their building uh, because for them, you know, safety is the number one priority. On social media, the neo-Nazi group NSC131 has posted photos of the Framingham protest where masked men held signs saying things such as, invaders go home. They left quickly. No arrests were reported. The group demonstrated in other Massachusetts communities as well, and it has distributed leaflets trying to recruit new members. Covarubias is concerned. This is an opportunity for them to advance what they want to accomplish, you know, build allies with misinformation. So right now they're just demonstrating, but they could, you know, up it up, right? And we don't want to be in a situation where we're upping it up means hurting some of our families. Covarubia says there are now increased police patrols at the new hotel. He's telling his workers to take precautions, such as knowing how to reach supervisors or law enforcement. His staff is also telling the 22 families living at the hotel to be vigilant and stay inside with doors locked if there are safety concerns. He and other providers have formed a group to work with the state and share information. We literally don't have time to be worried about hate groups. Uh, and it, and, and it really, that's how this group started, is really how do we, you know, watch the back of the direct service providers. According to the Anti-Defamation League, NSC-131 is a hate group that originated in Massachusetts in 2019. NSC is an abbreviation for National Socialist Club. The ADL says the members consider themselves soldiers fighting a, quote, Jewish-controlled system plotting against those who are white. They're a white supremacist group, and in the past few years, they've really um, they've really doubled down on New England. Peggy Shuker is with the Anti-Defamation League of Massachusetts and says groups like NSC 131 are targeting new migrant families around the country. And they are pretty much conveying a false narrative about who these folks are and suggesting that they are unsafe, uh, along with their regular vitriol that is, you know, virulently anti-immigrant. The man said to be NSC 131's leader is 25-year-old Christopher Hood of Newburyport. About two weeks ago, a man who identified as Hood posted on social media that NSC 131 has been able to avoid legal consequences from the Massachusetts protests, and he wants to take further action. Like I said, we need to get loud, we need to get aggressive, we need to be confrontational, and we've got to win. Earlier this year, the anti-hate group Task Force Butler Institute sent a report to law enforcement urging them to aggressively prosecute NSC-131. There is a legal case pending against Hood in New Hampshire. Sean Locke with the New Hampshire AG's office charged Hood with trespassing for allegedly putting up a banner on a highway overpass that read, Keep New England White. White supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, kind of these groups they know what the First Amendment will protect and will not protect, and they will try to carefully toe that line. A judge dismissed the case, saying it was an overly broad interpretation of New Hampshire law, but Locke is asking the court to reconsider. You know, we're looking at every possibility to, you know, make sure we are fully protecting the rights of everyone here at the state.
In a statement, a spokesperson for the Massachusetts Attorney General said the office is very concerned about the rise of hate and extremism. Some advocates say there are other avenues besides law enforcement to try to deter extremists. Cindy Rowe with the Jewish Alliance for Law and Social Action points to counter-demonstrations held after other anti-migrant protests. We're just very hopeful that the migrant families understand that people in Massachusetts are welcoming and these are just aberrations um, and in no way represent what our state really is about. As of last week, more than 6,800 families were living in Massachusetts emergency shelters and hotels. About half are new migrant families. NASA is about to launch a spacecraft on a nearly six-year journey to a strange asteroid, a rock the size of Massachusetts shaped like a potato. And unlike most space rocks, it's largely made of metal. NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce says all the metal is why NASA wants to go there. NASA has sent robotic missions out to planets and other places made of rock and ice and gas. But this will be our first time visiting a world that has a metal surface. Lindy Elkins-Tanton is with Arizona State University. She's the principal investigator for this mission, which is sending a spacecraft out to a rare asteroid called Psyche. This asteroid is over 150 million miles away in the outer part of the belt of space rocks that lies between Mars and Jupiter. And here's the thing. We do not know what Psyche looks like. She says telescopes see Psyche as just a point of light, but researchers can tell that it's unusually dense, which means it's probably 30 to 60 percent metal. Since asteroids are leftovers from when the planets formed in the early solar system, Elkins-Tanton says Psyche is like an exposed version of what lurks at the center of rocky planets. We're trying to understand about the metal core of the Earth and Mercury and Venus and Mars and also the moon has a little metal core. We are never, ever going to go to those cores way too hot, way too deep. So this is our one way to see a core. Besides figuring out exactly what Psyche is made of, the spacecraft will send back images. She says there could be craters in the metal that are ringed with iron spikes. There could be huge metal cliffs and the remnants of ancient greenish-yellow lava flows. Thursday morning is the first opportunity to launch the Psyche spacecraft. It should arrive at this metal world in August of 2029. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are coming up next, and in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, some states are trying out a new kind of medical treatment, housing paid for with Medicaid dollars. It's 8.30. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. 
From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Israeli strikes against Hamas continue today as the country calls up hundreds of thousands of reservists and amasses troops near the border. This is the region awaits a likely ground invasion into Gaza. President Biden says it stands, the U.S. stands by Israel. When Congress returns, we're going to ask them to take urgent action to fund the national security requirements of our critical partners. This is not about party or politics. It's about the security of our world. Now, 14 Americans are among the more than 2,000 dead in the conflict, and nearly two dozen are missing. In Gaza, the AP reports the remaining power plant has shut down as fuel supplies run low in the sealed-off territory. Hospitals say they're struggling to help wounded civilians with dwindling medical supplies. The Biden administration is calling for a humanitarian corridor to get civilians out of Gaza. And as much of the West turns to the war between Israel and Hamas, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a surprise visit to NATO headquarters in Brussels today as Russia's war in Ukraine continues, asking defense ministers gather there for a two-day meeting for more military aid. Next Monday will mark the 600th day of our resistance to Russia's full-scale aggression against our people. The U.S. has given billions of dollars in military aid and Germany announced $1 billion in weapons last night. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. U.S. Department of Homeland Security officials are in Massachusetts for a second day today. They're here to assess issues around the influx of migrants and how that's affecting the state's shelter system. The agency says it will work with state officials to maximize support. Governor Healy is urging the agency to provide funding to support the new arrivals. The T says all of the speed restrictions along the new section of the Green Line have been removed. Those restrictions slowed down some trains to about three miles an hour. The T says the slowdowns were caused by a narrowing of the tracks. Why that happened is under investigation. Also this morning, trains are running again on the Green Line branch to Union Square in Somerville. The branch was closed for a bridge reconstruction project. The reopening comes two days ahead of schedule. Nurses and other health care professionals employed by the state will be picketing in Boston today. They say they want to call attention to understaffing and dangerous working conditions. David Guiney is a nurse at Tewksbury State Hospital. He says wages there are significantly behind those of other health institutions and because of the condition of some patients at state facilities, understaffing can be dangerous. It really does take a lot. I heard recently at Worcester there was a, uh, well, there were three nurses. Uh, one got a detached retina, the other one had broken ribs, and the other one was punched so hard that they ended up vomiting. And that was in one incident with one patient. A recent federal report found healthcare workers face violence in the workplace at a rate 5 to 12 times higher than the national average. The time is 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. 
The Bruins begin their regular season tonight when they host the Chicago Blackhawks. WBUR's Dan Guzman reports on what's changed for the team since last spring's first-round playoff exit. Gone are veterans David Krejci and former captain Patrice Bergeron. Brad Marchand is now the captain. He's going to lead the charge. He's going to be right in the face of opponents, and his teammates will have no choice but to fall right in line behind Brett. That's Fluto Shinzawa, who covers the Bruins for The Athletic. He expects some of the younger players to be called on to step up and become the new stars. It's going to be Pavel Zaka and Charlie Coyle. Those are their two centers that are going to be taking the bulk of the shifts that Patrice and David leave behind. The puck drops tonight at the Garden at 7.30. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. Also tonight, the Celtics visit the Philadelphia 76ers for an exhibition game. Cloudy skies in our forecast today. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Tonight, a slight chance of showers in some areas. Lows around 50 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs in the 60s. It is 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Jerusalem. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Maui schools shut down by the August wildfires are set to welcome their students back next week. The disaster upended everyday life in West Maui, but officials reopened the area to visitors this week in an effort to help the island recover economically. Tourism is the island's number one source of income. Associated Press reporter Jennifer Sinkoe Kelleher was in Maui last week, and she's with us now to tell us more. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning. So first, could you just tell us what West Maui, and especially Lahaina, look like now, two months after the wildfires? Well, the fire destroyed about 2,000 buildings, most of them homes. It devastated most of Lahaina Town in West Maui. The so-called burn zone, it's very difficult to look at. It can be jarring to see because the rest of Maui seems completely normal. Officials are slowly opening parts of this. And as you can imagine, seeing the rubble of their lives is difficult. It's emotional. Mm. And also rebuilding after something like this, a terrible tragedy like this is is difficult and it's time consuming. I'm just wondering what the island's residents are saying about Maui reopening. Most of the people who lost homes, you know, they're staying in hotels. So some people that I've talked to, they say they want to stay in the hotels for now. They want to stay in Lahaina in their community. They don't want to have to move again. Others who may have pets or other needs have other housing preferences. There's a lot of feelings of uncertainty and being unsettled. You know, a lot of people who work in the tourism industry and have lost homes, they say that they're not ready to see tourists on vacation while they're still mourning and processing having lost everything. Mm. What do the West Maui, particularly Lahaina, which is an historic, you know, town, will look like you know, after or when rebuilding actually starts. What can you tell us about that? Like, what are some of the concerns there? 
Well, soon after the fire, there was concern that whatever is rebuilt from the devastation won't look like the multicultural working class neighborhood that was there. They're concerned that the fire will be an opportunity for wealthy outsiders to scoop up land in Lahaina and further price out native Hawaiians and other longtime Hawaii residents. So many Hawaiians and other longtime residents have already left Hawaii because it's just so expensive to live here. And so I've heard lots of mixed feelings about tourists returning and also what what's going to be built from all of this tragedy and, and devastation. You know, I think one thing that's clear to people in Lahaina is that they want to preserve as much of its cultural heritage as possible. Lahaina is often thought of as a tourist town, but it's an important historic place to Native Hawaiians. Mm. So um, on one of my visits to Maui, I talked to a Lahaina resident, Archie Kalepa, who is concerned about what the new Lahaina will look like. You have to multi-families in one home. That's the only way the people that live here can survive. But at what cost? But we're making them live this way so others can come here and enjoy this place. All they see is the beauty. They don't see the beast that is hidden behind his beauty. That is Associated Press reporter Jennifer Asinkoke-Kelleher. Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thank you. The U.S. Supreme Court hears another redistricting case today. This one could influence whether Democrats have a shot at winning a second congressional seat in South Carolina. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. At issue in the case is the way the Republican-dominated state legislature equalized the population of its congressional districts after the 2020 census, specifically Congressional District 1, CD1, which had 88,000 too many voters in it, while the neighboring CD6, represented by the state's only black congressman, had 85,000 too few voters. Now, you might think that the natural solution would be to move the excess voters from CD1 to CD6, but that's not what the mapmakers did. Instead, the GOP plan chopped up Charleston County, stripping from CD1 almost all of the city of Charleston and ending its 120-year history as the anchor for the district. The South Carolina NAACP challenged the redistricting in court, led by its president, Brenda Murphy. The residents that live in Charleston County use the same schools, the same churches, are now split. The state of South Carolina, however, maintained that its gerrymander wasn't racial. It was partisan. It makes a difference because, under Supreme Court precedence, a gerrymander that is predominantly based on race is a violation of the 14th Amendment guarantee to equal protection of the law. But a partisan gerrymander, while unattractive, is perfectly legal. Figuring out the difference can be tricky. As a result, these cases are very much determined by the factual findings of the lower courts. In this case, a three-judge federal district court found that the Republican legislature had drawn the lines for CD1 to create a safer Republican district, but, the court said, the predominant motivating factor in drawing the district lines was race. Specifically, the court found that the GOP determined it needed to keep the black voting age population in CD1 at a relatively low 17.3 percent, in order to achieve its partisan goal, and that it targeted the black vote to achieve that goal, violating its own map-drawing rule, which called for the least change possible to district lines. 
Interestingly, in a very real sense, the NAACP's argument in this case is the same one embraced by the Supreme Court in last term's affirmative action decision. In that case, the court said colleges were sorting students by race, and that's unconstitutional. And in this case, the NAACP claims the GOP state legislature sorted voters by race, and that's unconstitutional. NYU law professor Richard Pildes, an election law expert, sees a kind of consistency in all this. Because in both areas, the Roberts Court has taken the position that the explicit use of race in public policymaking or in educational admission practices can only be done if the government has the most compelling justifications for doing it. In redistricting, the only compelling justification is complying with the Voting Rights Act. That's not on the table here. South Carolina isn't making that argument. In other words, this could be a case in which the conservative Roberts Court sides with civil rights groups. Both sides have asked the Supreme Court to expedite a decision by January, so a new map will be in place for the 2024 election. Democrats believe that if they prevail, similar redistricting wins are possible in Louisiana and Georgia, and that combined with a recent win in Alabama, that could conceivably be enough for Democrats to recapture control of the House of Representatives. It's a stretch, but not a crazy one. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, the Marketplace Morning Report will have a story about how authors are affected by book bans, which have surged in schools and libraries around the country in the last couple of years. Mostly cloudy skies today, temperatures in the 60s. Tonight, a slight chance of showers with lows around 50 and sunshine tomorrow with highs in the 60s. 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit BlueCrossMA.com go. In business news, McLean Hospital in Belmont is working to provide better mental health care training for clinicians working with seniors. The hospital signed an agreement with Seattle-based Ripple Care to develop the program. The organization say the first-of-its-kind training program will give workers the necessary tools to improve care for seniors with dementia and other neurocognitive diseases. A Jamaica Plain restaurant is closing after almost 30 years in business. The owners of El Oriental de Cuba say the closures due to a variety of issues, including difficulties brought on by the pandemic. El Mundo reports that a new Mexican restaurant called Abuela's Table will soon take over the Center Street space. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at mclanehospital.org. And MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. 
Plan your visit today. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Jerusalem. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Some states are trying out a new kind of medical treatment. It's actually housing paid for with Medicaid dollars. The federal program typically pays for things like doctor's appointments and medical procedures for people who qualify because of their very low incomes. But as states struggle to find shelter for tens of thousands of people who go for long periods without stable housing, some advocates argue that housing is medicine. Katia Riddle has this report. This right here is our library. After living on the street for more than a decade, 65-year-old Ben Norris has a new home. He gives a tour of his apartment building in Portland, Oregon. Down this area, they have like a gym, you know, a gym to, to work out. They had a Norris is benefiting from a pilot project in Oregon that uses Medicaid dollars to find housing and pay rent. He moved here after he was diagnosed with diabetes and lost both his feet to the disease. He's in a wheelchair now. Despite all that, Norris still has his sense of humor. I'm told. (laughs) I don't do a lot of treadmilling, as you can imagine. With a $1 billion investment in coming years, Oregon is one of several states betting big on programs like this. The idea is that the money saved from keeping people housed and out of the ER will pay for housing. In his apartment, Norris points to rows and rows of medication. That is my second dose, so I can line those up, you know. Do you know how many medications you take? About five, yeah, five or six. Norris says he could never maintain this kind of health care regime if he was still living in a tent. After he landed in the emergency room, he got connected with a nonprofit that's participating in this program. Outreach worker Amy Borton helped him find his new place. Got apples, um, some some potatoes. On this day, she's bringing him a food box. She also helps him with his appointments at the wound care center close by. Yeah, I think one of the first things I remember us checking in about when you first moved in here is you kept setting your smoke alarm off with the pork chops. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It still goes off. It drives me nuts, man. Nora says the emotional and medical support he's received here has been invaluable. I might not be alive if it wasn't for this program. California is proposing a similar program, spending more than $100 million a year of its Medicaid budget. The state is at the epicenter of the homeless crisis, with more than 170,000 homeless people. I know that if I could get my patients who are experiencing homelessness housing, we could make everything else work better. Dr. Margot Cushell is a physician at the University of California, San Francisco. She is also one of the country's leading thinkers on addressing homelessness. Older people are especially at risk. I can sometimes tell that someone has lost their housing because I've cared for someone for 20 years and their diabetes and their blood pressure, you know, are super well controlled. They're doing well. And suddenly they come to me and everything has fallen apart. Kushal's optimistic about this program, but she says it's a gamble. So the bet here, or the question here, is can we target it and not use Medicaid as a way to provide rent for everybody, but instead use it in a way for people who could have less reliance on the most expensive part of our health system? That's the emergency room. The stakes are pretty high. 
Oregon has about three years to make it work. Sean Hubert is vice president of Central City Concern in Portland. The organization works on housing and homelessness. The federal government spends roughly $7 billion a year on homeless assistance, compared with more than $700 billion a year on Medicaid. Hubert says that kind of money could help organizations like his provide a lot more housing. We just we spend so much more money on health care than we do housing. And so ultimately, you know, we've got to get those two systems working more closely together. But just because these programs have worked in small pilots, it doesn't mean the savings will pencil out on a larger scale. That's where the complexity comes in, because in healthcare. We don't actually usually think about good healthcare outcomes as being less expensive. Dr. Kushel points out that profitability is not the best measure of healthcare outcomes. Health is. Health for Ben Norris means learning to manage his diabetes. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. I mean, real hardcore. To, and if you don't take care of it, you know, you end up, you know, not being around. How it gets paid for, he says, Medicaid or something else, it doesn't much matter. And me, I'm having, I'm enjoying life. <laughs> I want to be around for a while. Diabetes has already taken his feet. He's doing his best not to let it have any more of him. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with a story about an investigation into a blackmail scam that's affecting people in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community's Open Studios event, happening October 13th through 15th, featuring artist exhibits, experiencing architecture through VR, and using Legos for model making. For more info, visit fortpointarts.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Officials estimate that the fighting between Israel and Hamas has claimed at least 2,200 lives on both sides, with the fighting expected to escalate. President Biden plans to meet with Jewish leaders today to discuss the Hamas attacks and the fight against anti-Semitism. The U.S. Secretary of State is headed to Israel today. And a new report finds that scores for the ACT college admissions test have dropped to their lowest level in more than three decades. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Cloudy skies in our forecast today. Temperatures in the 60s, 55 degrees in Boston. Banning a book can boost sales of said book, but for other authors, it can bring financial hardship. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. 
I'm David Brancaccio. First, the House of Representatives is without an elected leader for over a week now. No Speaker of the House with authority complicates President Biden's plans to send further aid to Israel. The White House wants to combine that with more money for Ukraine. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer is following this. President Biden is urging Congress to, quote, fund the national security requirements of our critical partners. In normal times, funding bills start out in the House, in the Appropriations Committee. If the committee passes the legislation, it goes to the full House for a vote. But the House can't vote on any bills without an elected speaker. And Laura Blessing at Georgetown's Government Affairs Institute says the House speaker has to agree to put bills on the floor for a vote. If the speaker doesn't like your bill, you can pretty much forget about it. The difficulty in getting something passed that uh, the Speaker of the House is opposed to uh, would require very rarely used uh, procedural tools uh, that have been used successfully less than a handful of times. And if the White House bundled aid to Israel and Ukraine into one bill, that would make things even more complicated if the person eventually elected Speaker opposes more money for Ukraine. I'm Nancy Marshall Genzer for Marketplace. Israeli authorities say they've taken steps to disrupt the supply of digital money donations to Hamas. For years, Hamas has been accepting funds in cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. Researchers have also noticed that there have been spikes in crypto funding during times of conflict. Details from the BBC's Katie Silver. According to Israeli police, they say they've frozen the crypto accounts used by Hamas to receive donations, which Hamas solicited on social media. So in a statement, police said that Hamas has initiated a fundraising campaign on social networks, urging the public to deposit cryptocurrencies into their accounts. Now, what we understand is that the police cyber unit and the Ministry of Defence worked with the company Binance, which is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, to locate these funds um, and that they're going to divert the money to the Israeli Treasury. It's unclear exactly how many accounts we're talking about, nor the value of the crypto seized. But as I say, Binance said that they've been working around the clock to make it happen and that they regularly work and actively partner with global law enforcement agencies and regulators. Israel's military said late yesterday it used drones to kill the economics minister for Hamas, Jawad Abu Shamala, and another Hamas senior official. The first U.S. shipment of weapons to Israel since Hamas launched its attacks Saturday is due today, according to the New York Times. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will hold meetings in Israel tomorrow. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Smash Boom Best, a funny, smart debate show for kids and families from the makers of the award-winning podcast Brains On from APM Studios. There's news just now that wholesale inflation in the U.S. moved up a bit more than expected, five-tenths of a percent in September. Dow and S&P futures are up two-tenths of a percent. The 10-year interest rate is still lower at 4.59 percent. The banning of books in schools and libraries surged by a third last year. This from the nonprofit Pen America, which fights for free expression around the world. Reasons given for banning books are varied. They often have to do with race, sexuality, or gender identity. Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports now on how bans are affecting the livelihoods of authors one way or another. 
For the first two years after Maya Kobabe's memoir, Genderqueer, came out, nothing all that remarkable happened. It was really just receiving kind of like normal, nice debut book author reviews, but not making national headlines. That's changed in the last couple of years as genderqueer has been banned all over the country, from Florida to Idaho. Kobabe says the bans and challenges have been time consuming and stressful. But it's undeniable that they have boosted my career as an author. I have seen a huge rise in sales, and it has also led to a lot of other speaking opportunities. That's been the case for Ellen Hopkins, too. She's a prolific New York Times bestselling author who mostly writes for kids and teens, often about difficult subjects like drug addiction and sexual abuse. As far as I know, all 14 of my young adult novels have been banned somewhere. (laughs) Three are on the list of the top 10 most banned books. And because of that, she's also been getting a lot of press lately and seen a spike in sales. But in years past when her books were banned and there was less media attention, sales dried up. Because school libraries specifically are a big part of our market. And the reality is, most authors whose books get banned don't get much media attention. Casey Meehan at the nonprofit Pen America says over 1,500 titles were banned in schools last year. And while some are bestsellers, others are books that are lesser well known, and it could be quite detrimental on the economics of that book to be banned in that way. And not just in terms of sales. Mike Carrado is an author and illustrator, and in the past... Paid school visits were a very large part of my income, maybe a quarter to a third of my annual income. But now that his young adult graphic novel Flamer, about a boy coming to terms with his sexual identity, and two other books he illustrated have been banned in a bunch of schools... I have not been getting the invitations that I used to get. I get a few here and there, but it's nothing like the income that I used to rely on. And Corrado says book bans have another cost, too. I've lost so much time because of all of this. I have a book due at the end of the year, and I'm behind. I'm behind because I've dealt with so much book banning stuff. He wants to speak up against book bans, but it's consuming and it doesn't pay. And when you're not a super famous author, he says you have to hustle constantly to make a living. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. We're also watching to see what happens to Birkenstock as the morning wears on. The German footwear company with the goofy-looking but trendy sandals launches its stock in New York shortly. The company is starting with a valuation of itself of $8.6 billion. We'll see if the market bears that out. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. In our forecast, mostly cloudy skies in greater Boston today. Temperatures in the 60s. A slight chance of showers tonight. Lows around 50 degrees and sunshine tomorrow. Highs in the 60s. It is 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders. Committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act, so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com and mitsloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. And Emerson Colonial Theater with Just For Us. Alex Edelman's one-man show returns to Boston direct from Broadway December 15th through 17th. EmersonColonialTheater.com. 
I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandes, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.